Well, hello. My name is Stephen Shetterly. I am the Director of Local and Global Outreach at Bellingham Covenant Church. I am really happy to be able to share this message with you this morning. And so, let's get started. Now, I remember as a kid growing up in the 1980s that one of the things that I really didn't enjoy doing around the home was answering the phone. And there were a couple of reasons for that. Now, first of all, reason number one was that when I would pick up the phone and say hello, often, until I was about the age of 13 or 14, the response I would get from the other end was, Hi, Nancy. Now, Nancy is my mother's name, and I love my mom. I don't love being mistaken for my mom on the phone because of my apparently womanly-sounding voice, though. So that was reason number one. Reason number two is a little bit uh, further back in the mists of time. Um, Reason number two was that I grew up in southwest Washington in a small town, and apparently phones were, I don't know, such a new thing at that point that they didn't have a dedicated phone line to everybody's house. And so we were on a party line, which meant that when the phone rang and if you rushed to pick it up, uh, you might end up in the middle of a conversation between your neighbor and his grandmother, for example. It wasn't, it wasn't your conversation. It was someone else's, and, and it felt weird. Well, our passage for today is a little bit like picking up the phone in the middle of a conversation that isn't your own. You have a chance to listen in on a, an intimate conversation between Jesus and his heavenly Father. And that is something that is rare in the Gospels, actually. So our passage for this week is out of the church lectionary, which if you don't know what that is, it's, it's just basically a three-year rotating cycle that has passages for each week laid out, which takes many churches in the world that follow it through most of the Old and New Testaments over the course of three years. And our lectionary reading for today is from the book of John, the 17th chapter. It's an extended prayer between Jesus and the Father, and it ranks in maybe the top 10 of some of my favorite passages in the Bible, because uh, it's not often that we get to see in such detail what it is exactly that Jesus prays. But here we get a whole chapter of this conversation between Jesus and his Heavenly Father. And we're going to see that this prayer reveals a Jesus who might be, in some ways, very different, much stranger than the Jesus that we thought that we knew, and a God who is altogether different from anything that the world has come to expect of God. And then we're going to see ourselves reflected in there, because this is one of the few places in the Bible where a reader can look and say unequivocally, that's that's me he's talking about right there. Before we dive into the passage, though, uh, it's important to understand where in the whole story that John is laying out, where we are. And so, as you might know, the Gospel of John is divided into two main parts, two books even. Uh, The first 12 chapters talk about the ministry of Jesus, his miracles, uh, about his life. And in those dozen chapters, we race through three years of Jesus' ministry, and then we reach the last week of his life, and it's as if someone hits the slow motion button and things suddenly get a lot more drawn out and we zoom in way further to get a lot more detail on what that last light, last week of Jesus' life looked like. So starting in chapter 13 and continuing basically through the rest of the book of John, we get a detailed look at the final days and teachings of Jesus. Chapter 13 is the Last Supper, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet and he commands them to do the same for one another. Uh, 
Uh, and then chapters 14 through 16 are kind of like the farewell address of Jesus. They are where he gives some of his final teachings, some of his final commands, where he lets the disciples know that he is going to be leaving them and tells them what life is supposed to look like for them continuing on. And then he flows from that farewell address into prayer, which is where chapter 17 picks up and where we'll be reading from right now. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to John chapter 17. I'm going to be reading selections of verses 1 through 11, so not the entire passage. Let's read. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I pray for those whom you have given me out of the world. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now I want to focus on just two aspects of this passage today. First, this idea of glory. You can't read these few verses here without getting hit over the head six different times with the word, either the word glory or glorify. So it is a major theme here. And then I want to focus in on where that theme of glory leads us, where it leads you and me. So first of all, glory. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Gospel of John is essentially split into two main parts. Chapters 1 through 12 are called by scholars the Book of Signs, because this is where Jesus, through his miracles and his teachings, where he is demonstrating to the world and to his disciples that he is the Son of God. And then, uh, chapters 13 onward, we enter what some scholars call the book of glory. Because glory is such a huge theme in this section. You can't even turn around in these final eight chapters of John without bumping into glory uh, over and over and over again. And so it's worth camping out on this term for a while in order to figure out what exactly it is that John means by it. So I don't know about you, but when I think about the term glory, the first thing, obviously, that comes to mind is the 2007 movie Blades of Glory. Okay, so if that is not a familiar reference to you, I, I don't blame you at all. It's a movie with uh, Will Ferrell and John Heater of uh, Napoleon Dynamite fame, and it is about a rivalry between two male figure skating stars. So enough said there, I think. Uh, I've actually never personally seen this movie because, honestly, I know what a film with Will Ferrell and John Heater about male figure skating is, is going to be like. It's, it's going to be an over-the-top sort of a movie. And that's the sort of word that glory is. It's an over-the-top sort of a word. It is a word that is reserved for church services or for talking about monarchs or maybe for over-the-top sorts of sarcastic jokes. Glory. You can't talk about someone being glorious and keep a straight face unless that person is really, really, really special. So in Greek, the word originally meant light or radiance, like the shining of the sun. And it came to be a way of describing a person's reputation. 
In the Old Testament, the Hebrew term glory of God came to be a synonym for the actual manifestation of the the presence of God. Psalm 97 is one of many examples where it talks about the glory of God being accompanied by signs like a devouring fire, like thick clouds, like flashes of lightning. That is what glory looks like and feels like. And then, in the first chapter of Ezekiel, there's a shift. And you see this odd reference, not just to to fire and cloud and the radiance of the sun, but suddenly to glory being seen in a human form on a throne, which is a bit of a strange turn for a people who would only ascribe the word glory to Yahweh, to the one true God. Well, this strangeness grows even further in the New Testament, where we see the biblical writers start using this term glory in relation to Jesus. In Luke, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's said that the disciples see his glory. And there are many references to Jesus being glorified after his resurrection. And this is shocking enough that we are using this word that the Old Testament writers ascribed to Yahweh, to the one true God, and we're applying it instead to this man, Jesus. But then the Gospel of John takes it yet another step further. John is different from the other Gospels in his use of this word because he takes that word, glory, and he spins it around completely on on its head. In John, glory begins in the most unlikely of places, in the most unglorious of places. How does Jesus begin this prayer in John 17? He prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So the natural question there is, is what hour has come? What is it that's suddenly ready to happen? Well, what is it that happens right after this prayer concludes? Does Jesus go out and defeat all of Israel's enemies and then ascend into heaven on a glowing beam of light to become the undisputed king of the universe? That would be glorious, wouldn't it? But that's not what happens. After this prayer, Jesus heads out to the Mount of Olives where he is arrested, where he's abandoned by his uh, disciples, by his friends, where he's given a sham trial where he's tortured and executed. The hour has come. Glorify your Son. And so for John, the cross is where Jesus' glory bursts forth. The ugliest, most unjust, most God-forsaken moment in all of world history, John is saying, that is where we witness the glory of God most clearly in his Son Jesus on the cross. John is saying, look, Look here, look into the face of God. See what the prophets and the angels have longed to see. Behold his glory like I have beheld his glory. Well, this is not the sort of God that we are used to seeing. This isn't even the sort of God that we really want to see most of the time. We want the powerful God, the one who comes and smites our enemies. Or we want the abundantly providing God, the one who keeps our our bank accounts full and our stomachs full and who keeps our mortgage paid. Or we want the healing God, the one who keeps us and our families well and healthy and happy. I'm not saying that God isn't a healing God or that he's not a provider, that he's not any of those things. He is. He's all of them. 
But what John is saying is that if you want to see God, God in his essence, not just what he does for you, but God as he is, you have to go through Jesus. And in order to see Jesus clearly, you have to see him on the cross. Broken, suffering, forsaken for you and for me. That is where God is most fully revealed. This is glory. Now, N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd have a wonderful, very long new book called The New Testament in Its World. And in their chapter on John, they write this. When we speak of following Jesus, we are talking about the crucified Messiah. His death was not simply the messy event that enables our sins to be forgiven and which can thereafter conveniently be forgotten. The cross is the surest, truest, and deepest window on the very heart and character of the living and loving God. And the more that we learn about the cross, the more we discover about the one in whose image we are made and about our own vocation to be cross-bearing people. So the cross is not just our ticket to heaven. The cross isn't just that thing that has to be believed in in order for us to to get into the club and, and be part of the crowd. The cross is the very center of God's revelation of who he is, and it is to be stamped on every one of our lives. Which brings me to point number two. Where does this revelation of Jesus' glory take us as his followers? So along with glory, the other main theme of Jesus' prayer in John 17 is unity. The language of unity is all over the place in these chapters that are clustered around John 17. It becomes repetitive, almost like a mantra. Remain in me as I also remain in you. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I could go on and on with this. So Jesus is pointing to the union that he has with his Father. He comes from the Father and he will return to the Father. All that belongs to the Father belongs to him and vice versa. He and the Father are one. And then, surprisingly, we see that Jesus applies this language not just to him and his Father, but to himself and his disciples. This deep, intimate unity doesn't just exist between the Father and the Son, but the disciples are welcomed into it and enfolded in it. And here is where I'm going to jump beyond our passage for today into the second half of Jesus' prayer in John 17, because all of this language of unity reaches a crescendo there. And this part gets me because it's here that we see Jesus praying for us, for you and me directly. We don't have to imagine ourselves in the place of the disciples or any of the other biblical characters because, as Jesus says in verse 20, My prayer is not for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, guys that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus prays this prayer of unity for his disciples and then for us. Let them be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And so I thought that this would be the part of the sermon where I would pound my fist and I would exhort you all to be unified with each other. I mean, Lord knows there are many, many ways for us to be divided as a church and as, as human beings these days. There's nothing like a global pandemic with a, a healthy dose of social isolation and some economic misery and way too much time spent online listening to people's opinions to, to be the perfect recipe for division in the church. 
So I thought I was going to tell you all to just stop it. Stop fighting and be united. But that's not what the text here says. That's not where it leads. This passage isn't an exhortation to unity. It's not a command to stop fighting and be united. I mean, there are plenty of those. And if you read through the book of Philippians with us this summer, you'll see that theme appearing again and again. But right here today, remember that we are listening in on a not-so-private phone call between Jesus and his father. When Jesus gets on the phone with his dad, this is the point of it all. When Jesus gets on the phone with his dad, he talks about us. And he knows that we are a bunch of basket cases. Honestly, he has just told his disciples that they are all about to abandon him and to leave him all alone in his greatest hour of need. And yet, in this intimate conversation between Jesus and his Father, he asks that his followers, the ones that the Father has taken out of the world and given to Jesus, he asks that we would be one, united in the same way that Jesus and the Father are united. And now that's not something that you can do. It's not something that I can just command. It's something that has to happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let that soak in. That's the prayer that Jesus has prayed over us. How is it going to be realized in our lives? Let me just wrap up by saying, Bellingham Covenant, that we have the great, great privilege of sharing in the glory of Jesus. In verse 22, he prays to the Father, I have given them, that's us, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. It's not a glory like anything else this world has ever seen. This is the glory of the cross, the glory of self-giving sacrifice. That is the glory that we share with Jesus and his Father. That is the glory that the world is going to see in us. And that's the glory that will bring us to complete unity in him. And then Jesus said, Amen and it will be so.